Uh, and now to introduce our speaker who we are delighted to have join us today, we have Dr. Kate Marshall. She is currently the Samuel H. Wise Fellow in General Internal Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Marshall earned her medical degree from OHSU and then we were so fortunate uh, to recruit her for residency in internal medicine here at Providence St. Vincent, where she also served as chief resident and then returned to OHSU for her addiction medicine fellowship. She serves in several leadership and education positions, including secretary for the Oregon Society of Addiction Medicine and course director for the OHSU School of Medicine First Year Addiction Medicine Elective. Additionally, she is providing content expertise for revision of OHSU's alcohol use disorder care guidelines and is very active in providing clinician education for the expansion of Providence's multidisciplinary approach to addiction recovery support or the MARS project. Her particular interests within uh, addiction medicine include systems improvement, provider education, and exploring the historic context of American drug policy and addictions care. We are uh, really looking forward uh, to her informative, perhaps provocative uh, talk today. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. So excited to be back and to speak with you today. So today, I am going to talk about some lessons I learned in addiction fellowship. So, um, first of all, um, kind of the stuff we need to cover. I have no financial relationships to disclose. I have modified and um, de-identified the cases. And then throughout, you guys probably remember that I was an art major and um, there's this wonderful website, addictionandart.org, where um, artwork um, by and about people with substance use disorders is displayed under the Creative Commons license. So there are a couple of samples of that throughout. So our objectives today is that by the end of the presentation, you guys should be able to describe the ideology of substance use disorders, describe and mitigate the impact of stigma and trauma on patients with substance use disorders. And we'll talk a little bit about how to enhance motivation and practice harm reduction for patients with substance use. And I'm gonna warn you right now, um, I'm not gonna focus on the latest advances in medication treatments or how to manage withdrawal. This talk really focuses on several philosophies of care that I explored in fellowship. And these are approaches that I believe make caring for patients with substance use disorders more satisfying and much more effective. And they're part of the evolving standard of care in addiction medicine. So first let's look at a case. So this is Jonathan. He's a 37-year-old man. He's admitted for alcoholic hepatitis. He says his last drink was several days ago, and indeed his alcohol level is negative on admission, but other biomarkers show that indeed he was having pretty heavy alcohol consumption within the last several days to months. He tells you that he really had about eight years of heavy drinking in his early 20s, about five to six standard drinks daily, but then was diagnosed with fatty liver about 10 years ago. And he achieved seven years of abstinence with Alcoholics Anonymous as a mutual help uh, group for him. And during those seven years, he actually earned his MD. Um, but then he had a return to use about a year ago when right about the time that he graduated medical school, a friend of his from 
medical school died by suicide and he returned to drinking. And so this is his second admission for hepatitis this year. I talked to him and learned a little bit more about him. So he's never engaged in residential or in intensive outpatient treatment for his alcohol use disorder. He's never been offered medication treatment for alcohol use disorder by a physician. So consistent with the majority of patients with alcohol use disorder. He does have a family history. So his, fa his father and his uncle both struggled with alcohol use. And he personally denies any history of legal involvement, no blackouts, no seizures from alcohol in the past. So when I met Jonathan, I had a hard time kind of comprehending how he could have let this happen. You know, I identified with a lot of his story. You know, he's a physician, he's well-educated. He knew his medical risk. He knew he already had consequences. He knew he should avoid alcohol at all costs, um, but he ended up returning to drinking and not being able to stop, even though he could lose his career, his family, and most likely his life. So for a long time, my coping mechanism for working with people whose health choices I didn't understand was to say to myself, every behavior has a reason. I might not know what it is, but there is a reason here. And in addiction fellowship, I learned a lot more about the reasons that people do what they do, specifically why they continue to use substances despite these devastating effects on their health, their relationships, and their self-esteem. Because in fact, that loss of control is really at the heart of the DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder. It's a clinical diagnosis, and it's made based on the effects that a substance has had on a patient's thoughts, their actions, and their life. So there are these 11 criteria, and they're grouped into a few categories. So first we look for escalating or continuing use, even when someone actually wants to cut back or stop. So that's loss of control. We look at whether the person has had consequences to their health, their relationships, or their work or school as a result of substance use. And finally, we ask if the patient has invasive, unwanted thoughts or compulsions around the substance, and that's what we call cravings. So when someone has two or more of these 11 DSM-5 criteria, we can officially diagnose them with a substance use disorder. But what is happening in the brain to allow a substance to wreak that kind of havoc on somebody's life. Um, why would they still continue to use a substance despite their better judgment? So eventually I read enough, I learned enough, and I spoke to enough patients to realize that there was an explanation for it. And that explanation was that the substance is survival. Now, what do I mean by that? So people try substances for a variety of reasons. You know, they may be seeking relief from negative emotions. They may take a substance to enhance an already pleasurable social or sexual activity. They may need more energy or alertness. They may just be more curious about what it would be like. These are all understandable reasons. The scary part is that some people seem to flip a switch and lose control over their use of the substance, while others don't. And how does that happen? Why can other people use the same substance without any problems? So it turns out that our brains have a hardwired way of telling us what's important. So experiences that benefit our individual or collective survival, like food, drink, sexual stimulation, social connection, these all stimulate the release of rewarding neurochemicals 
including dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, endocannabinoids, endogenous opioids in various complex and unique combinations. And that creates a sense of rightness, of reward. And the amount of that stimulation is measurable. So for instance, ingesting food causes about 150% above your basal dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens in animal models. And sexual activity increases dopamine release to about 200% of baseline as measured with microdialysis. So our brains assign a kind of star rating to each experience, which in neuroscience is called incentive salience. And so the more rewarding the activity, the more powerfully it's encoded into memory and motivational systems. And the sights, the sounds, the smells associated with having that experience, they're carefully recorded in the brain so that we can better seek out these beneficial experiences in the future. And in turn, have a better chance of surviving. And this encoding has been shown to be even more deeply carved in the presence of stress. In the natural world, a few plants have evolved to directly stimulate those rewarding neural pathways in humans, bypassing the complexity of an experience and going straight for the receptors. And so opioid receptors evolved to accept endogenous opioids, endorphins, which help suppress pain so that we can escape danger and survive. But the poppy plant produces raw opium, which is about 10% morphine, and morphine is a molecule that directly stimulates the mu opioid receptor in humans and affects powerful pain control due to direct stimulation and even euphoria. And then cocaine, the active alkaloid found in coca leaves, it binds directly to dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake transporters in the synapse. And so it floods the synapse with neurotransmitter excess and it's intensely pleasurable and stimulating. The brain's nicotinic, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors regulate alertness, attention, autonomic nervous system activity, and when directly bound by nicotine from the tobacco plant, it's almost like turning up the volume control on these systems and can have a really pleasant effect. But as more potent chemical analogs have been isolated and distributed over the last 150 years, it's become apparent that direct stimulation of reward pathways can confer more incentive salience than any experience or substance found in nature could do. So when we look at methamphetamine, for example, it results in dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens up to 1200% above baseline. There's no natural experience that measures up to that. But the brain doesn't know the difference between an actual rewarding experience and a substance that directly stimulates that neurochemical pathway. And it encodes them the same way. So in some cases, the brain may in fact associate reward and cues and memories around the substance more strongly than cues for food, thirst, sex, social interaction, because the stimulation is stronger. And that's where disordered motivation begins to develop. As the brain begins to prefer stimulation with the substance over other positive experiences. But obviously this disordered motivation doesn't occur in every case when someone tries a substance even multiple times. It turns out that a person's brain structure and neurochemical makeup before ever trying a substance 
can actually make them even more vulnerable to this effect. And there are three factors that seem to account for most of the reason why one person might develop a substance use disorder and another not develop one, despite exposure to the same substance. So it turns out that substance use disorders are about 50% heritable, and there are multiple candidate genes for biological susceptibility to disordered substance use. It's been shown that even without substance use in the environment in childhood, people with a family history do appear to carry receptor polymorphisms, other characteristics around reward and impulsivity that make them vulnerable to disordered motivation around substances. Trauma and stress, especially childhood trauma or chronic stress, modify the brain's reward system over time. And there is evidence that chronic stress actually decreases dopamine receptor density in the brain, which can make ordinarily pleasurable experiences seem almost muted or uninteresting. Um, until a substance comes along that finally creates enough direct stimulation to create reward. And I've heard patients say again and again that the first time that they tried their substance of choice, they finally knew what it was to be okay. And they didn't say good. They didn't say amazing. They didn't say phenomenal. They said okay. And they hadn't known what that felt like before. Another important component is timing of exposure to substances. So encountering substances during the vulnerable period of adolescent brain development, it's a strong risk factor. So in fact, 50% of adults with substance use disorder had symptom onset before age 18 and 80% before age 24. So we now know that when the brain is vulnerable due to heredity, changes due to trauma or stress, or is in the vulnerable period of development, the door is opened to a use disorder when that vulnerable brain is exposed to something that gives strong and significant reward. The last component in developing a substance use disorder is repetition. So with repeated exposure to a substance, the pathways associated with the substance develop tolerance and the substance becomes a requirement to maintain a normal mood or to avoid physiologic withdrawal, which can be incredibly unpleasant. And this creates a new layer of negative reinforcement around the absence of a substance. So not having the substance isn't neutral, it's suffering. And the brain encodes that negative association powerfully as well and does everything it can to avoid that. And once that occurs, the idea of not having the substance is perceived by the brain similarly to starvation or to being deprived of water, or maybe even more intense based on what we know about incentive salience. And in this context, the choice to use a substance at the expense of other desires and goals, it begins to make more sense. This is a Dr. Nora Volkow. She's an eminent researcher in the neurobiology of addiction, and she's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the NIH, and she put it this way. It is difficult for people without addictions to understand that people with addictions are not just seeking to get high, but suffer a medically rooted impairment in their autonomy that thwarts their best intentions to attain freedom from drugs. It is a disease in which essential motivational and self-control systems of the brain are compromised. Medical intervention, not punishment or moral re-education is required to restore this essential human birthright. So what happened to Jonathan? So while he was hospitalized, he reconnected with his old AA group for some support and the team discussed FDA approved medications 
for treatment of alcohol use disorder. So first of all, we have naltrexone, which binds to the mu opioid receptors critical to the brain's reward pathways, and it reduces the reward associated with ingesting alcohol. Acamprosate, which reduces post-acute withdrawal symptoms through binding to NMDA and GABA receptors, and then disulfiram, which supersedes the soothing effects of alcohol by creating instead unpleasant negative effects when you ingest it. But it should be noted that disulfiram does not work when it's not observed dosing, um, and so it's become much less common to use disulfiram, also known as anabuse these days. And for him, since naltrexone is contraindicated in liver dysfunction, acamprosate was selected, and he actually continues to take it eight months later, and all of his biomarkers have shown no return to use of alcohol. So how can you help? I think first of all, just assign appropriate weight to a report that a patient is craving a substance. There probably is not a big enough word to express what they mean by that. Recognize that asking someone to go against their survival instincts and go without a substance, it's a huge deal. You know, once they've developed a substance use disorder and treat it as such, give it that appropriate weight. It feels that way to them. And then importantly, use medication and other treatments to provide evidence-based care for this chronic, relapsing, organically-mediated disease. Does anybody have any questions about the etiology of substance use disorders before I move on? Awesome. Stunned silence. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. So we're gonna talk about another case next. This is Logan. He's a 28-year-old man. He's admitted for bacteremia and a septic shoulder joint, secondary to injected heroin and methamphetamine use. He says he typically uses about a gram of heroin daily and methamphetamine multiple times daily. And his last use was about 12 hours ago. He had previously been on buprenorphine, um, was able to achieve abstinence with that medication treatment for about six months, but then had a return to use as is probably expected with a chronic relapsing disease. And he's currently in moderate opioid withdrawal and admit. So the addiction medicine team was consulted and he was started on buprenorphine four milligrams three times a day with oxycodone as needed for breakthrough pain. So the next morning I stopped by his room and the nurse grabbed me and said, he's not doing so well. So I go into his room and he's curled on the bed with his pillow over his head and he's crying, he's just sobbing. And he says, I should never have told you guys that I'm a drug addict. I'd be on a pain pump right now if I weren't. His shoulder was just killing him. He says, you think I'm just a junkie. You think I'm a screw up. I'm in so much pain. And at first I was taken aback. You know, we'd given him buprenorphine to treat his withdrawal. We'd given him an oxycodone to treat his pain. I was practicing personalized and appropriate care. You know, why was he putting these words in my mouth? Why did he think that this was how I viewed him? It turns out that when it comes to substance use disorders, words really matter. And if there's one word that I feel gained meaning for me during my addiction medicine fellowship, that word would be stigma. So sociologists describe stigma as the situation of the individual who is disqualified from full social acceptance. It's also been described as a spoiled identity. 
And stigma occurs when human differences are labeled, stereotyped, distanced from the majority, and then discriminated against. And it turns out that according to the WHO, drug use disorder is the world's most stigmatized condition, exceeding criminal behavior, other mental illness, communicable diseases, and homelessness. And there are two primary schools of thought around the stigma. The first is that by expressing disapproval of substance use disorder and of substance use in general, stigma results in fewer people with a disorder since they risk marginalization and exclusion by using the substance. So this view really correlates with prior sociological study, which classified stigma under the science of deviance, which was thought to be a necessary process to maintain societal identity and cohesion, separating the moral majority from the immoral minority. The other view is that because substance use disorders are defined as a loss of control, over substance use, even extreme stigma is incapable of restoring that control. And then marginalization, incarceration, discrimination against people with substance use disorders may actually create new and insurmountable barriers to recovery that wouldn't exist if the stigma weren't there. And this view is more in line with recent sociological study that views stigma as a critical tool in the domination and exploitation of vulnerable populations. And in fact, Influential sociologists Link and Phelan, who are some of the most visible researchers in the, in the world of stigma, they argue that applying stigma as a deterrent is only useful when the behavior is clearly voluntary. And that applying stigma to involuntary traits is really better classified as prejudice. And unfortunately, stigma against people with substance use disorders has been repeatedly demonstrated to result in worse health, health outcomes. So a recent, recent national survey of primary care providers found that while the majority believe that opioid use disorder is a chronic and treatable disease with organic origins, many held extremely stigmatizing views of people with the disease, reporting they wouldn't want a person with opioid use disorder as a friend, a neighbor, to marry into their family, and for every additional point a provider scored on the stigma measure, the less likely they were to actually offer evidence-based treatment in their practice or to refer their patient to evidence-based care. Another study of doctoral level mental health and addiction clinicians randomized them to reading a vignette describing a case of a substance abuser or a person with a substance use disorder. And those who read about the abuser were more likely to judge the patient as deserving of blame and punishment associated with their substance use. And this association was even stronger when presented in a randomized fashion to the generalized popu population using the same language. So the pervasive use of morally weighted terms around substance use, it also amplifies patient self-stigma. So terms like clean and dirty and abuser they aren't used for patients with other behaviorally mediated or expressed conditions. And patients with substance use disorders, they internalize the language that they hear, especially from providers. And they typically report very high levels of self-stigma. And in general, the higher a patient's self-stigma, the less likely they are to seek treatment for substance use disorders or to remain in treatment when they do. And people with high self-stigma 
also require longer treatment courses to achieve the same goals compared to people with less self-critical views. It also turns out that perceived stigma from providers is a major reason cited by patients with substance use disorders in a decision to leave a hospitalization against medical advice. And many patients describe leaving AMA as a choice to return to a community that accepts them rather than stay in a setting where they feel that they are constantly uncomfortable, feeling judged, and feeling ashamed. So that brings us back to Logan and the perceived stigma that he felt from providers, whether it actually was expressed or not, and the really heavy self-directed stigma that he had absorbed from the community. You'll notice the words that he used to describe myself. I'm a screw up. I'm a junkie. So both of these were interfering with his ability to cope with his pain and threatening his ability to remain hospitalized for the medical care that he needed. And I ended up just kind of sitting with him for a while that morning and listening to him. And he had a lot to say, most of it really bad stuff about himself. Um, but after that, he felt better. And we ended up making a couple of moves. We increased his buprenorphine to treat his withdrawal and cravings. We added anxiety treatment to his regimen. We increased his full agonist pain medication doses. Um, as a side note, it has been shown that people with opioid dependence actually have less tolerance to physical pain um, compared to people without opioid dependence at baseline. And so they often do require higher doses of opioids than people um, with opioid without opioid dependence in the same setting. He engaged with peer support in the hospital, which was a really great thing to help him connect with someone who he felt could understand him, who was accepting of him. Kind of no questions asked, somebody who'd been there. He was discharged to residential substance use treatment, and he ended up completing his outpatient Dalbavancin infusions in the community successfully. So how can you help? It can be hard to change the way that we talk, especially when we're used to it, um, but I think it's really important to be conscious of these morally weighted terms that we use around substance use. So things like abuse, dirty or clean, just avoid them in your documentation and your conversation as much as you can. And instead, practice person-first language. So a person with a substance use disorder is preferred to something like addict, drug abuser, or alcoholic. And keep in mind that people with lived experience can use whatever term they want to describe themselves, because facing that self-stigma and working through the language around it is a really important part of recovery. Any questions about stigma? and the way that it affects patients with substance use disorder? It's okay if there aren't. Yes? I'm just kind of curious, I mean, maybe you think this is integral to the question of stigma, but, um, you know, I'm always, like, wondering where to fall on the whole person-first language thing and the fact that groups like AA and NA will often have people, you know, embrace these identities like alcoholic and addict, right? And what do you do with that when patients persistently in part because of their experience, right? Like they experience it as a step on the way that they're recovering. Yeah, so, so the question is about AA and NA and the way that one of the early steps is to really embrace the identity of an alcoholic, for example. Um, and and how, do we, how do we navigate that as providers? I think that's a great point. And that's kind of where we get into this idea of 
what language do we use as providers versus what language can patients apply to themselves? And I, I completely agree that it feels weird to hear patients kind of use these terms about themselves and they almost sometimes will use these terms kind of reaching out to you and saying, hey, I'm a junkie. Um, I think that's a really important part of what they go through as far as facing their own internalized stigma around what it means to be an alcoholic um, or to be a junkie, if those are the terms that people are applying to them from the outside. I think part of what people go through in AA and NA is to reclaim that identity and create community around identifying with that marginalized group and then to create a new meaning for that word as they move through the process. And so I think that, that, that those words can be really helpful as far as reclaiming them for the community. But I think that as providers, we should really stick to our medically approved kind of DSM-5 language. You know, drug abuse was taken out of the DSM-5 with the new addition. Um, it really behooves us to use medically neutral language, um, but to understand that patients can use whatever they like to talk about themselves and that it can be a really important part of their recovery. I know, you know, some providers will reflect back to patients. Um, you know, they'll say, what's your clean date? Or you've been clean and sober. You know, that's kind of a stylistic choice. I don't make that choice, um, but often they feel like it creates rapport with patients because patients often identify strongly with a clean date because that's how they self-identify the day that they cease using substances. So, great question. Yes. Um, I don't know if you'll get to it now or if it'll be part of this year-long curriculum, um, but um, the anger and the antagonistic behavior, it, um, it becomes so counterproductive. I think many of us have experienced that we really feel like, oh, we've built some rapport and things are going well in the hospital. And then that switch flips. And and we get just thrust with accusations and anger. And um, it is hard to maintain our own sense of calm in those settings. So I don't know if that's something that will come up in this talk. It's almost like you're a plant, Claudia. <laughs> yeah, so Claudia's first point was that use of person first language is something we can apply to lots and lots of conditions, especially conditions that have stigma associated with them, like diabetes, schizophrenia. Um, you know, I was listening to a podcast where somebody recounted how, you know, the, the last, the most common diagnosis that they saw in the hospital as a medical student was SWAF or shooter with a fever. You know, the, you know, these are not person first and that as we evolve, um, it can be a little bit more unwieldy, you know, it, to, to say person with A rather than to say, you know, the diabetic in room three, um, but that it really behooves us to put that person first um, and that you're right. This absolutely applies a, across a lot of medical conditions. And I also found myself thinking about Stephanie Griffith and the work that she's been doing on weight stigma um, and 
and how there are so many parallels among kind of traditionally marginalized communities and the way that we can do better and provide our best care. Um, and then Claudia's second question was about when things fall apart and patients get activated, you know, how do we kind of keep our cool? So it's just like you have seen my talk already. So um, any, any other questions before I move on? Yes. Um, I, I will often say, you know, I would consider the medical diagnosis to be substance use disorder, but, you know, you can talk about yourself in any way you choose, and I'm, I'm happy to hear you speak about it, um, you know, because, yeah, people can identify in any way they, they want, and I'm happy to accept whatever language that they want to use. Um, I personally don't reflect that language back to them, but a lot of um, addiction providers do. So it's it's a legitimate choice as well. And there there could be an argument that it helps to build rapport, but I personally don't make that choice. Yeah. Dr. Marshall, just a point of clarification yeah. um, and curiosity from online. Um, when you stated that you added medication to treat anxiety, what medication was considered? Yeah, so we kind of have a, a standard panel of, of question, sorry, of comfort medications that we use in opioid use disorder, including things like clonidine, which can often help to reduce the heart rate that's associated with kind of a panicky feeling, hydroxyzine just for a little bit of a sedative effect. And really, if it comes down to a question of the patient having so much anxiety or, or, um, or panic that they're going to leave the hospital, I think a one-time dose of benzodiazepine or maybe even a couple of times dose would not be more harmful than it does have benefit. Right, so I, I would not take those completely off the table. I think there are a lot of good options. A lot of patients um, find that gabapentin helps them feel a lot better. Um, so a lot, a lot of different options based on kind of the quality of the anxiety that the patient's having, whether it's kind of physical, mental panic, they just kind of want to, you know, be sedated. You know, there's a lot of different options. So, yeah. Anything else? Great. All right. So this is Evan. He's a 29-year-old man with a past medical history of severe opioid use disorder, so IV heroin, as well as methamphetamine use disorder and tobacco use disorder. And he's admitted for sepsis of the right knee after unintentionally injecting directly into the joint. He had left against medical advice from another hospital two days ago and then presented again, is now status post washout of the joint, just got onto the floor. His pain is managed with Tylenol as well as IV Dilaudid and oral oxycodone. He had had bad experiences in the past with both buprenorphine and methadone, um, and so he declined withdrawal management with either of those. He also declined nicotine replacement therapy, which was offered to him. And so when I came to see him, it was late in the evening. He had just come out of surgery and was kind of getting settled into his room. And he was in the middle of a pretty serious disagreement with his nurse. So he was requesting to leave the floor to smoke a cigarette. And the nurse said, no, we can't do that right now. You can't bear weight on that joint until you're cleared by PT after your washout. It's too early post-op. I need to keep a closer eye on you. We can't spare staff to accompany you, make sure that you'll be safe when you go out. And he kept escalating and escalating. And so eventually the attending physician from the primary team, the charge nurse, me, the addiction physician, the administrator on duty, we're all in his room and we're trying to persuade him to stay please stay. You know, your knee is infected. You need antibiotics. You could lose your leg. 
Um, and he just kept screaming, you can't stop me. You can't keep me in this room. And eventually he just made us get out of his way and he crawled to the balcony to smoke and then came back to his room screaming in pain from his knee. And I felt so horrible about what he went through. Um, but even knowing what I knew, it was hard to believe that he would risk his safety, his limb, his life to smoke a cigarette. It still didn't make sense to me. And as I reflected on what could have been done differently, I realized that Evan had been stressed to the point where he couldn't plan beyond his next five minutes. And reason had no effect on him. And I wondered, was there some way, some other way that I could have approached him that would have been more effective? And so last spring, I had the opportunity to work in a clinic in Southern Oregon um, whose patients all have substance use disorders and young children. And the clinic specializes in navigating the generational trauma that often occurs in patients with substance use disorders. And they partner with DHS and with the justice system in Southern Oregon to do so, having these multidisciplinary care calls between all three of those agencies because most of their patients are involved with at least two of those. And the physician that I worked with, she introduced me to something called the neurosequential model of treatment. Has anyone ever heard of this? Yeah. So it's well understood that people with substance use disorders report high levels of childhood trauma, lifetime trauma exposure, we touched on this earlier, and PTSD. In fact, nearly 100% of people with substance use disorder report past exposure to at least one serious traumatic event and 83% report exposure to at least six adverse childhood experiences, things like physical, emotional, sexual abuse, or neglect. And more than a third of people with substance use disorders meet criteria for PTSD. We also know that 80% of people with co-occurring substance use disorders and mental health disorders, which is a really common combination, report a history of a significant traumatic brain injury. And so as you can imagine, exposure to trauma or a history of TBI, or both, can create long-lasting effects on behavior, coping, and decision-making. And so research and work with children and adolescents with severe trauma exposure has produced a framework for understanding the behavior seen in trauma survivors. And it's called the neurosequential model. So it's a neurodevelopmental approach to behavior that was developed by Dr. Bruce Perry over 20 years ago, and then recently popularized by Oprah when they co-authored a book on trauma. And so this model describes states of arousal in response to perceived threats. And in the, the model is kind of predicated on the idea that people with a history of trauma, especially during childhood, they may change states extremely quickly and they may behave in ways that seem irrational to others. Most of us have rarely, if ever, been in these states, but people with a history of severe trauma can just go down this this path really really quickly it's reflexive it's part of their survival mechanisms that they developed when they went through these traumas and so you can see there's the state that most of us are typically in or hope that we're in which is where we're calm we're thinking in our neocortex our needs are met we're able to think ahead and plan rationally but with any perceived threat you go to vigilance where your subcortex is activated a threat is perceived your thinking becomes concrete you maybe can only plan for the next few hours or days. From there, you proceed to alarm, where your limbic system takes over. You're actively having distress. Your thinking becomes emotional, focused on the next few hours or minutes. From there to fear, where you're primarily existing in your amygdala, your hypothalamus, 
you're in extreme distress and hyperarousal. Your thinking is reactive. You can only focus on the next few minutes or seconds. What can I do to get out of this situation? How can I feel better? And then you go to terror, which is basically where you have autonomic dominance, severe distress, impeding your cognition. Your relative IQ is incredibly low. And your actions are basically just reflexive and they're focused on meeting your survival needs right now. So it's easy to imagine how Evan, who more than likely had a history of trauma, he was in pain from his surgery, he was in physiologic withdrawal from opioids and methamphetamine and nicotine, and he was being told that he couldn't leave a room. And he just quickly changed states. And so another word for this in Dr. Perry's language is state-dependent functioning. He was unable to focus beyond the next few minutes. And in retrospect, I shouldn't have tried to reason with him, right? I should have addressed his basic need for safety and comfort. So we might call it trying to elevate the state. Now, why is this so important and how do we do it? So we know that rates of discharge against medical advice are extremely high for patients with substance use disorder. Around 25 to 30% of hospitalizations in this population end in unplanned discharge. We also know that unplanned discharge greatly increases the 30-day mortality and the 30-day readmission, which happened to Evan, right? He had left another hospital two days before. And the top reasons for these unplanned discharges, as reported by patients themselves, are undertreated withdrawal, undertreated acute and chronic pain, perceived stigma from hospital staff, and feeling trapped in a hospital room. And I think these make sense because these are all situations that would increase arousal and panic in someone with a history of trauma and whose brain perceives a substance as necessary for survival and is being deprived of that. So what has been shown to reduce unplanned discharge in patients with substance use disorders? Well, in this big review, the two that they found most significant were the use of in-hospital methadone, so treating withdrawal adequately, and social support, which are unsurprisingly the same things we might consider to bring someone to a calmer state of mind, treating their withdrawal, providing social support. So that brings us to the next point, which is that medical care in general is not designed to be responsive to people with a history of trauma. And as individuals, we can make small changes to our practice to acknowledge trauma and stigma, but much more will be needed before our health systems feel like a safer, safer place um, for people with substance use disorders and other trauma. And as individual practitioners and as systems of care, we can then begin to anticipate triggering events and environments to restore power to the individual through choice, create safe environments, and rebuild self-worth for our patients. So Claudia, my answer is that it is incredibly challenging because our systems are not designed around this. And there are small things we can do to try to be aware um, and to try to make small steps towards people being more comfortable. But it's true that our regulations, our staffing, our environments, they are not built for people with a history of significant trauma. And that's something that we can work on together. So for Evan, he crawled back to his room and was readmitted. He got treatment for his pain, his anxiety. We used medications other than buprenorphine and methadone to treat his withdrawal while he was admitted because he intended to go back to using heroin when he left the hospital. And I remember this case really well and I have modified it, but the case that I was thinking of, I went back when I was preparing for the grand rounds and I said, I wonder, did he have a history of trauma? I didn't ask him. I didn't really get a chance to talk to him during the admission, but um, 
it turned out that when I dug through his chart a little bit, he had had this ED visit for suicidal ideation a year ago, and he talked to a psychiatrist, and he reported childhood physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, and he actually started using opioids at age 10, and injection heroin at age 11, and he had been able to stay away from heroin for 10 years after that kind of childhood adolescent use. But then his sister was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he became her primary caregiver and he had a return to use of heroin. And as a result of his return to use of heroin and methamphetamine, he chose to remove himself from his partner and his five-year-old child. Um, so these were the stresses that he was under when I met him. And it wasn't just the cigarette, was it? So I didn't know about this about him when I knew him, but I kind of was amazed when I went back and looked at the chart that this information was available to me. And it turns out that you can pretty much assume a history of serious trauma in anyone who acts this way. Um, so he ended up remaining admitted for just another two days, um, but we arranged for outpatient Dalba Vanson. He, on his way out, he was so sweet. He expressed tremendous appreciation for care from the nursing staff, the primary team, the addiction consult service. The discharge summary was very funny because the, the attending physician said, Evan is a great guy in really tough circumstances. So it's very sweet. Um, he completed his antibiotic course, but he didn't show up for his follow-up appointment with infectious disease. So he was lost to follow up. So how can you help? You can recognize which state your patient is in during each interaction. And then you can support patients toward calmer states by treating their pain, addressing their withdrawal, assuaging their fears around their basic safety, which it may not be apparent to you, is feeling threatened. And then, of course, to engage with system efforts to incorporate the principles of trauma-informed care into the routine delivery of health care. Does anybody have any questions about trauma, trauma-informed care? Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. We'll start with Boris. I, I guess my question um revolves around would you have done anything differently acutely in that situation when he was about to crawl out of his room um, if there is anything to even be done there yeah so um after this i actually had the chance to observe one of my senior attendings in a situation like this um what she did was she got everybody out of the room and darkened the lights and she sat by the bedside and she said you're safe you're safe and she said, we're going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. And she just like played right into where his heart was hurting. And his mind was saying, cigarette, cigarette is going to wait. What's going to make this feel better? You know, it was a different substance with the patient that she was dealing with. But she basically just put him in like a little cocoon of safety and then got the peer as well. Someone that they would be able to trust, right? Who wasn't a medical professional. And so having the peers around was a really amazing um, step that she took. And so I think those are kind of the main things that we could have done differently was to take some of this like bright light, lots of professional looking people telling you about what your life is going to look like 10 years from now, you know, really just taking it down to that sense of safety and making things simpler and really reassuring them that, you know, we are going to take care of you and there are ways other than that cigarette that you can feel okay. And so, so that's what we should have done differently. Um, and I think just on, as far as routine care, just being really attentive to people's withdrawal and pain and anxiety because um, really just common reasons why people panic and leave the hospital. Great question. 
Uh, Kate, um, who are these peers and can we have some of them? Yeah, I think you guys have a peer. Dixie is starting. Um, so um, peer support specialists are people who would live experience who are in recovery and they go through a certification program to be registered peer support specialists who exist in the community, in hospitals, in doctor's offices. Um, we have them at Central City. We have them at um, OHSU. Um, and then there are people just in the community who are available to be accessed, um, who can take people to appointments, who can sit with them in the hospital. Um, and we're going to have a session with some peers um, in November where you guys will get to meet some peers in recovery who work at OHSU and the expertise that they bring to their interactions in bridging between medical providers and the patients using their lived experience. Um, at OHSU, they're in on, you know, they, um, they're like HIPAA qualified and they sit in on all of our rounds. So they know exactly what's going on with the patient medically. And then they also are able to relate to the patient on that I've been there um, level. Really a wonderful, I know the Providence Foundation is starting to support peers and that there's some at Prof Portland, I believe. And I think there's one about to start here at St. Vincent very shortly. They're awesome. They're the best. So many fantastic questions for you, Dr. Marshall. I'm wondering, for the sake Probably, of time, should we move you forward yes. and pull the questions to the end? These questions are great. Okay. So one more case. So we're going to talk about Portia. She is a 31-year-old woman. She has a past medical history of severe stimulant use disorder, IV methamphetamine, and then prior tricuspid endocarditis. And she is admitted for a right groin abscess. And when I met her, she was very frank. She's planning on returning to use of IV methamphetamine after discharge. She wants some narcotic, anxiolytic, nothing but a benzodiazepine will do. She has severe pain in her shoulder. And she says, I don't need a sermon. I don't want to talk to you about any of this stuff. I'm just here for my shoulder. Leave me alone. And so when I met Portia, I was scared for her. Um, she made it clear she wasn't interested in stopping or reducing her methamphetamine use, and she'd already had these life-threatening consequences. She was facing more. And in some ways, it felt like there wasn't anything I could do for her until she showed some sign that she wanted to change her ways. But I also realized that even if she and I had completely different goals around her substances, that didn't mean that I wasn't on her side. We could still be a team. And that's where harm reduction comes in. Because addiction is a chronic, relapsing disease, there will be ups and downs, good times and bad times. And at every point on your patient's spectrum of goals, whether that's continued use, some reductions or changes, or complete abstinence, you can be on their side to keep them as safe as they can be. So there are many ways you can care for someone who's not interested in changing their substance use. So first, you can reduce the chance of accidental death by providing naloxone rescue kits to anyone who uses illicit opioids, but also anyone who uses illicit stimulants or benzodiazepines because those are increasingly contaminated with fentanyl. So keep that in mind that illicit benzodiazepines, stimulants, and opioids all have the potential for opioid overdose, okay, and would be appropriate for a naloxone rescue kit. And throw some refills on there and tell the person, I put 11 refills on this. Fill it again as soon as you can. Give it to your friends. It goes over really well. <laughs> You should also frequently test for communicable diseases in anyone at risk. So hepatitis B and C, HIV, RPR, these are all standard of care for anyone at risk when they get admitted to the hospital and should be part of your practice. Kind of on top of that, you should offer all indicated medical treatments 
and to people with ongoing substance use and not hold their substance use as a reason to not offer medical treatment unless there's a major safety consideration. Don't hold that over their head. We can't treat you until, right? You should provide information about safer routes of ingestion. So for instance, say the neck and the groin are the most high risk areas to inject. Let's see if we can help you find some other areas, maybe use a different route of ingestion. So smoking rather than injecting, it turns out that intrarectal use actually bypasses first pass metabolism and can be almost the same as injecting, but without actually you know, piercing the skin and introducing that risk of infection. Patients are somewhat shocked to hear me talk about that, but um, they often are very receptive to the idea and it could keep somebody safe if they're not you know, piercing their skin, putting themselves at risk of infection. They often don't enjoy doing that anyway. Um, and then provide supplies for safer use, including hand sanitizer, alcohol swabs for cleaning their skin, readily available to us here in the hospital. If you can get your hands on some sterile water, using sterile water to dissolve your drugs is often a much better choice than people who often have to use saliva or water out of the tank of a toilet because they don't have other options for dissolving their drugs. So if you can get them some of that, that would be amazing and probably much appreciated. I also encourage the use of an overdose prevention hotline um, such as never use alone. So these services, they ask for the person's first name, their location, and then an operator stays on the line while they use their drug. And if someone stops responding after using, the operator then notifies emergency services of an unresponsive person at that location. And they save a lot of lives. It's very kind of unobtrusive, you know, just to have someone on the line. Can keep somebody safe if they don't have anyone to use with. So these actions are really expressions of caring for your patient. They let them know that you care about their health, even if they continue to use substances. And they create the foundation for an alliance rather than an adversarial relationship or I can't do anything for you because you're using substances. And then maybe if they decide to make a change, you're someone that they'll trust to talk to about that. So this is Haven Wheelock. She talks to our Addiction Medicine Fellowship a couple times a year. She's incredible. She's a nationally recognized harm reduction specialist who leads the syringe exchange program at Outside In. And she says, isn't harm reduction just enabling? You know what? It is enabling. It's enabling people to be healthier. It's enabling people to be connected to other people. It's enabling people to get access to healthcare. So we use this term enabling with substance use disorders as a negative term, but honestly, I think enabling people to be healthier, happier, and less dead is a wonderful goal. She's so hilarious. I love her. So for Portia, we treated her abscess and her acute pain appropriately. Fortunately, her infectious disease tests came back negative. She was encouraged to consider alternate routes and locations since she had a groin abscess, or sorry, a shoulder abscess. And she provided, she was provided information for the needle exchange by social work. She was provided with a supply of alcohol swabs for skin cleansing, and she got a naloxone rescue kit on discharge. And when she left, she said, I'm going to come here again. <laughs> so that brings us to the conclusion of my talk today. And before we go, I'd just like to summarize a few of my key points, which is that risk for substance use disorder in the setting of, it occurs in the setting of genetic susceptibility, a history of trauma, and then exposure during a vulnerable period of brain development. And then substance use disorder develops when the brain then perceives a substance as necessary to survival and prioritizes obtaining it 
over other goals. Experiencing stigma from others and from oneself worsens outcomes in people with substance use disorders, but trauma-informed care, use of person-first language, and harm reduction are steps that you can take towards a trusting, a satisfying, and an effective therapeutic relationship with someone who uses substances. Thank you. Wow, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshall. Just an incredible wealth of information. I know we've had many questions already and probably many to come. I wanna capture one online um, and then address our audience. Um, specifically, the question is, can you talk about boundaries around narcotic contracts? How often do we let them slide off it versus keeping a firm boundary? Um, so this sounds like an important question, maybe also for our outpatient providers. Um, and feel free to maybe explore that topic in general with regard to boundaries. <laughs> so um, the topic of boundaries around narcotic contracts and around um, opioid use in general could be its own talk completely. Um, I think the short answer is that contracts in general, like many other punitive kind of forms of negotiation with patients, they tend to be pretty ineffective. Um, I think that the best use that you see of a contract of that type is really a shared expectations um, document. And one thing that may seem counterintuitive is that often the addiction medicine approach to that type of relationship is that if someone is struggling or if they quote unquote violate the bounds of their contract, you bring them closer, not push them farther. You don't dismiss them from the clinic. You don't reduce their prescription. You don't taper them off unless you're gonna switch them to something else that'll be safer. You bring them closer, you do more visits, you do you know, more frequent check-ins, and if they continue to struggle, you go to a higher level of care. So bring people closer and not farther. And we'll talk about that a little bit in subsequent lectures, but that's kind of the answer around boundaries is that boundaries should exist and predictability is really helpful, but that having kind of punitive response to violation of the boundaries is kind of in a counterintuitive way, not the way that we would prefer that people react. Great, I wanna respect that we're nearly at nine o'clock and suspect some of our colleagues online will need to leave um, as well as those who are here live. Um, Dr. Marshall may be able to stay a couple minutes yet if there are those in the audience with questions still. Or email me. <laughs> Great, that sounds like a very open invitation. So thank you, Dr. Marshall for your email up there and an amazing talk. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Thanks guys.